Hey, question. Do, pe- do people read books anymore? Do you think the average person is reading books to get knowledge? Um, average person, no, but the extraordinary person, yes. What's the last I book? I think that's true. What's the last book you read? Oh, I, well, I just read a book by, um, I don't want to say because I want to, I. Oh, I caught you. Yeah, you, have you a, did. You, you I have, have a tr- book prepared. Uh-huh. You are listening to Weird Religion. Hey, I'm Brian Doak. Hi, I'm Leah Payne. This is Weird Religion. The podcast for people who know religion is weird but love it anyway. We are here with a special episode today with a live audience. Yay! Portland, Oregon. Super excited. Thank you so much for coming. Of local people and people here for Bridge Week at Portland Seminary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So excited to be here with you all. Thanks for being here. Yes. This is a crowd of possibly hundreds of people. Emerging. Uh, it's something. between, it's, it's, you know what it's, my dad uh, used to say yeah. when my dad was a pastor, he'd be yeah. like, it's between one and 2000 people. Yeah. I think, and I think that mystery, <laughs> yeah. I think that mystery should really like suffuse, pervade the atmosphere uh-huh, here. Yep. We're huge. Of how many people there huge. really are, but we're so pleased. Yes. And, and we're at Well and Good, a really cool coffee shop. This room is really nice. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like I should have more money than I have to be hanging out yes, in this room. Yes, it's a fancy place. It has a feeling yeah. like that, doesn't it? Like yeah. with these walls and yeah, so on. Yeah, it is. A, is Yeah, upper middle class. Yeah, Okay. We, we've ascended. We've ascended, yeah, <laughs> upper middle class. Um, okay, yes. so we have a concept here for today. This episode mm-hmm. is called The Books for a Reason. Yes. And it's because we had an email from a listener. We've been a little bit tardy yes, on, on we're getting sorry to about this. That. But we do respond to requests for episodes at times and depending on what it is. And this is yes, one of those rare times. Yes, because we do get some kind of off the wall. What, sometime we should do just episode pitches that didn't make it into an episode. Oh, great. We could just in other words, in other words, all my ideas. <laughs> Very funny. All my UFO ideas. Yes. I would just do a UFO. Somebody, a fan of the show said the other day, like, why don't you guys just become a total only UFO podcast? <laughs> I, know. I was like, aren't, aren't, aren't we like, though? I've Isn't been that trying what it is? to do that. I've been, we've been yes. working on it. Brian, just so you listeners know, like UFOs have been in the news a lot and almost every time they're in the news, I get a text like, this is it. And poor Brian has well, yet to be here's the thing. satisfied no, with the disclosure. I'm <laughs> I'm like the, I'm like everyone's one friend who's like read all the books and is like into it. And He's I know very, the gossip yep. and the soap opera going on with it. Yep. And so people will text me. It's more often that you text me the UFO That's stuff. That's true. I do. Yes. There's a sort of a, but there's like a litany of UFO evidence yeah. that I know will be the live really exciting audience, to Brian. The live audience right now is like, are they going to go into the UFO thing? <laughs> is, <laughs> you is don't that, know. We might. Is that going to happen? We do yep. find a way to railroad it. But maybe maybe, maybe you should describe, Leah, what this what this concept is, what, right. this, what this listener what oh. this listener, listener mail had suggested or wanted. Yes, we got an email uh, several months ago now. Sorry about that. Um, from someone might have been who, li- last year, who <laughs> wanted to be known. Yeah, someone who wanted to be known as R. So R, thank you for this. I'm just going to read the um, email, which is, I know you are. I know you both are well accomplished in your field. So oh, nice. That's, that's how you. Yeah. Um, yeah that's right. So my question <laughs> is, to a lay person such as myself, if you could recommend books for me to read and study, what would they be? I know this might either be a silly question or it's a question you both get asked many times over, which we don't actually. And, and not <laughs> silly. And time. not a silly. Not question a silly at question all. at all. To rephrase, what books would you want your students to read? Sadly, I can't even afford to even try to go back to school, but I love learning about this stuff. Oh my gosh. Wow, I love lifelong learning. That is so exciting. Just Thank even, you so much for that Just to even question. read that, it just, it, it, like, it just buoyed my day. I know, right? It lifted the human, it elevated the human spirit. 
It, it actually just did. To, just to hear yeah. it, just to yeah. see it. But it's a time to celebrate books. I kind of took the question to like, what were some books that came up during my graduate career that yes. like, when I read them, I was like, you know that feeling that you get when you read and you're like, whoa, and this you just like sit serious. in silence. This is serious. So I actually, I think we were, we were gonna, we decided we were gonna choose three. I did three and a bonus. Of course you did. Is that okay? Did. <laughs> so I did three you did a, not understand the assignment. No. Well, did, well, what did he ask for? Did he ask for three or did he ask for a couple? He just said books. We decided okay. on three. Okay. Well, we had I, a social contract. I, okay. <laughs> I, will, I will do the three. I will do three. I will yes. pick three. I love it. Okay. But why don't you no, go? do four. How about you do two and I'll do four? Okay. No. No. Let's, Okay. Let's just go back and forth, okay. like pitching the books. Yep. And I, I truly think I invite you to begin with like yours. And they don't, okay. have be, they don't have to be in order of like most influential. And by the way, to ask people who have done a PhD in a field like Dr. Payne to pick three books is like- There's no way to do I, it. It's just not a thing. Yeah. Like you can't, yeah. you can't ask, you know, it's like, it's like asking like a Battlestar fan, what was your favorite episode? <laughs> that was it's like me. asking that was me, me. It's like if asking me- I could me, have just a podcast about Battlestar it, Galactica, reimagined 2004 edition, I definitely would. Or it would be like asking me, what was my least favorite episode? That's and right. it's like hard to All pick. All the like, episodes. episodes. You love that. This is one Which of our one was fights, the worst? our longstanding arguments. But okay. anyhow, 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 Elevated okay. the form of science fiction. Yeah. Anyhow. Okay. But that episode where they pretended like it was like a meta episode where they were doing a documentary that was during a great the episode, episode. That was probably a really dumb piece of television. No, it was not. It, it was really, not. It, it was really great. Was. I would have. Really I would have gotten. I would have gone with any episode if they would have done okay. a musical episode. I would have been into that. Okay. Anyhow, okay. So my book is first. Go for it. Okay, you're up. My book, a book that has formed me deeply, is by a guy named Max Weber. Oh, Max Weber. You Let's know just give it. A clap Max Weber. The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Oh, wow. And he has a few to choose from, but that was the one. That is the one that was really deeply formed, formative for mm -hmm. me. I try to bring it up in almost every class that I teach. There have been some very prominent critics of Weber, mm. but Weber, just so that you all know, this is for you, are and for anybody who's interested in reading um, more, Weber was one of the founding figures in, of the discipline of sociology, started out as a historian, and so as a historian myself who wishes I, I if I could do a second career in scholarly world, it would definitely be as a sociologist because sociologists in, in many ways are doing like big data history. Um, so Weber is essentially exploring what the relationship between like in mass Protestant societies, specifically nations and capitalism. And as a country, as, as someone born into a nation that is, is, has a very special relationship with both Protestantism and capitalism. I find it to be endlessly fascinating. And it's one of those books that I just think about all the time. Yeah. I mean, what's the pitch in the book? Like, what's his argument? I well, have a vague idea and I have read it. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the title is uh, the title almost gives the argument in a way, right, doesn't it? Right. So, and I have to say, first off, just for the footnotes alone, it's worth a read. Oh. Yeah, the, the footnotes book is actually in the 19th, like shorter than you think it's going to be. The 19th be. century, early 20th century was a uh, heyday for footnotes. That was, that was footnote palooza, yeah, is essentially. It's, it's all going, yeah. going downhill since then. So the central question of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, what Weber ar argues is, why is it that Protestant countries seem to be so wealthy, so prosperous? Mm -hmm. And Weber argues that there's a theological component to it that lasts long after a nation no longer considers itself like a, a 
like the practitioners no longer consider themselves to be devout. And so yeah. he basically argues that there's something, a sort of magic relationship between a specific version of Protestantism um, and capitalism that makes it reformed theology that makes it yeah. like this heady brew that makes the United States the <laughs> most heady, prosperous nation in, in the world. And what Weber, he was arguing this in the early 20th century. Um, what he looked um, like across, it's a global argument. There's so much more to it, but I'm just reflecting on yeah. like in, in this my particular it. cultural we context. We can't stop you. Go for you it. You can't stop me. Yep. I got the microphone. Yep. Um, but uh, he was arguing that you don't even, long after gr large groups of people even um, hold particular ideas Year, there's like echoes of those mm, ideas. Vestigial. Lots of people have critiqued Weber. You know, did he get Protestantism, like that specific form of Reformed Protestantism, right? Um, was the data that he looked at um, reliable? There's a really interesting, I think it's a Freakonomics episode on that where they decide to test Weber's thesis. Really? Super fascinating. Wow. And they do it with like, um, I think they're like German counties or something like that. It's really interesting. But, you know, I think a, uh, to me, a good book has a provocative thesis that gives life over time. Yep. So it's a book that was really foundational for me. And it's like, I can't get it out of my head. Yeah. And everywhere I go, yeah. when I'm thinking about religion, religious movements, like how religious movements, like societies are formed, Weber is like in my ear. Yeah. Is, it, is part of the argument that... The reformed theology, even if mm -hmm. it's real and active or if it's just an, a ghost haunting people, that really it was like people, if you have to show that you're one of the elect or, or you have a belief that there are elect and there are unelect, you want to show that you're one of the elect, right? Yes. Which is like you work really hard and then you succeed and then you're like, see, I was. Yeah. Part of the argument. And it's a, it's a really... It's, it's hard to even summarize it in a short period of time because I know we have to get to your book. Well, um, you know, who, who but, 10 minutes on, on Weber, it's yes, worth it. It's just oh, worth it. yes. But um, part of the argument has to do with how, like, uh, a certain kind, how you demonstrate your election. So if you know anything about Reformed theology, part of it has to do with the idea that God elects the saved and then also damns the unsaved. So how will you know that you are saved? If you think about it, you know, say you grow up in a reformed uh, tradition, um, how would you know? Well, um, there are, there's a really interesting book about American Puritans um, or proto-American uh, Puritans that talks about they adopted this idea of visible sainthood. So you'll know that you are an elect person, essentially, if you demonstrate wealth, health, you know, like some sort of external um, instantiation of God's favor in your life. Um, so you could imagine that could be a really energizing idea. Um, and then Weber also has this whole thing about um, what Protestants do with Roman Catholic vocations. And so it essentially makes, you know, this kind of ascetic life that um, Catholic people who are participating in the vocations, like priests and nuns and, and folks like that, what they do, like it is now incumbent on all Protestants to do. Um, so that kind of ascetic life you would save, right? Like you wouldn't necessarily have a, um, like a really like, you know, throw big feasts or do stuff like that. You want to save it and you want to reinvest it in the work of, of the gospel or the church. And so 
it's there's more to it than that but that's fascinating to me right like okay. i'm i'm i just want to think about that forever like how those ideas may or may not live on um in in american society and beyond that's a worthy that's a worthy defense of Woo! max weber okay all right okay bring it. i gotta match you 19th century eight, you know early 20th century european guy for european guy <laughs> great with i'm gonna hold up the books i brought the books look at this guy's face do you see ah uh, yes are you looking Okay, let's look at that face. That's a face of, a, of an armchair scholar who did totally questionable ethnographic work on uh -huh. people around the world and wrote a theory of religion. This is called The Elementary Forms of Religious Life, Emile Durkheim. Wow. I chose this book because, I chose this book partly for a personal reason as much as for, and this is like, a, this is like an earth shattering important book in the history of religion. It is. Religious theory, which Leah can attest to and probably knows the book better than I do. Well, if you were in a religious studies class, you'd read Weber and Durkheim. You'd read them both. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and often uh, as, as, as Weber is known as the, the, the person who instigates the field of sociology, Durkheim is kind of, you know, also in that, um, also in that, that, that zone, but also somebody who does, you know, anthropology, yes. kind of early version of that. Too. A founding father. A founding father, mm -hmm, let's say, part mm -hmm. of the group of the founding fathers. Mm -hmm. So I brought this up. It was really for a personal reason. It was because I started my MA program right after my undergrad, and it was at a state school, Missouri State. Fantastic. Shout out for Missouri State. Yay. Are you what from are Missouri? There? Someone from Missouri. Okay. Where? Pick, up, pick up the microphone. Let's, let's get a little, let's get a little <laughs> let's moment here. Let's get some Missouri love Let's here. get some Missouri. Where, are you from Missouri? Is that why you're doing that? Yeah, I moved from Springfield. No way. Are you serious? That's another clap right That's, there. For yes. You okay. two Springfield, Missouri alums did right you, here. Did you go to Missouri State? I didn't, but I have tons of friends who did. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. What friends is there? who went through the MARS program. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So Missouri State, it's, it's a regional powerhouse for religious studies. What is their, um, what do you call it? The the, the animal that you cheer for? Uh, mascot? Mascot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, what is their mascot? He is really into sports. I'm um, super into a sports. very into sports. Yeah. It is, it is a, a bear. It's a bear, right? Okay. It's like a grizzly All bear. All right, go bears. Go bears. Okay, so, um, continue, continue. Yeah, so anyway, um, we're about four-fifths of the way through the show here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, so... The reason is because I had just graduated from, I went to a small kind of Christian school. It was, I was really excited about academia. I was really excited about faith. Um, and this book was like the first book we read in the first history of religion seminar at wow. this like secular institution. And I was so excited because I wanted to study in that kind of environment. You know, if you go to a, if you go to a faith-based school, you can get a feeling sometimes like it's just an echo chamber and so on. And I was really excited to like break out of that. And, and there was a lot that was great about that. And this book was like the first like eye opener because his basic argument in here is that religion is a fundamentally social thing. Mm. And he talks about, he uses this phrase collective effervescence. This is all based on memory here. I should have looked in the book. I think that's the phrase <laughs> to talk about what happens when a group of people gets together and like one person starts getting excited, then the next person, then everybody else. And like, you can just whip a group up into a frenzy over the idea of the group itself. Like, like, a Taylor Swift concert. Like a Taylor Swift concert, for example. Yes. Um, or Beyonce. I didn't have a Taylor Swift clip there to play, so we'll do the hard. That would but, be great. Okay. So, or the or like the idea of a charismatic Pentecostal church. Right, and because right, right. I had been reared during this formative period of my life in, in charismatic settings, it was the first time I had ever thought seriously. Like maybe I had thought about it in my head, but not my heart, as they say, mm -hmm. about this idea that like, yeah, there's something going on here, which is like deeply human. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that would, to all sophisticated people like yourselves, just nodding wisely, like looking at a child. I mean, you would, 
of course you would assume that there's something like deeply human about the interaction with the divine. But to mm -hmm. me, like to read someone saying that it was like, it just went down on this deeper level. And I was like, Oh, right. So right. the study of, of it all kind of got real. And even it led to an experience, which, which wasn't, wasn't like all toxic or poisonous for me personally, but it led to like a reevaluation of my own religious experiences. I was like, going to ask you, did that, how did you, how have you, you know, I'm thinking of young Brian yeah. going into that. Yeah, yeah. Now you're like seasoned. Yes, seasoned very Brian. grizzled. How did that simmer in well, your Well, you know, the life? first thing I thought of was that one thing that was really important in, in, in those church environments was like laying hands on people in prayer, mm, like physically mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. And it struck me like, I mean, it's such a naive thought, right? Looking back, but I remember thinking it. I remember being in my early twenties and thinking, yeah, just to be in a space where you put hands, where some people put their hands on you and mm -hmm. say positive things about you. Mm. That's like, that's a thing in and of itself. <laughs> like, right, right. That's a thing. Anyone could do that. And so, whereas in those settings, I mean, you know very well, you, you, you're, you are longer and deeper into Pentecostal circles. I mean, the idea isn't, hey, let's get together on a purely human level and just try to like affirm each other. In a, you know, right, no. No, it's like prayer, yeah. right? It's like, but the idea kind of came into my mind, an idea that I think I've always kind of, wrestled with or thought about like, you know, or tried to disentangle or thought maybe we never need to disentangle the idea that maybe things I thought were miraculous were also just like deeply human things too. Yeah. I, um, I appreciate that because it doesn't even necessarily rule out miraculous, but it also includes. Yeah. It includes people. And yeah. I think for like from a Christian theological perspective, it depends how radical you get about the idea of incarnation. The most radical theology I've ever read about this was, I think there's an Italian theologian whose last name is Vatimo mm -hmm. has this book. I could have that name wrong. We don't really fact check things on the show. Yes. We just kind of say things. We'll do it on the back end. You do that in class. Okay. Yeah. So Vatimo, for example, <laughs> says, you know, this is like radical, like European cutting edge theology is like the incarnation actually means that God has become human. It means that there isn't like God has totally divested God's self into the material world completely like there is no God that's we are. God. Oh, like that's that okay, idea. okay. So like that's a, that would be a yes. very radical statement of something like that. Yes. That would go beyond traditional Christian. Yes. Theology, Cause obviously. I was just going to say my students, the students in my class just read Athanasius where yeah. that, which is sort of like one of the, like a very early, um, very like complex and also very simple mm. argument for the incarnation. I was mm -hmm. like, Oh, okay, here we go. Bodies. And then nope. Yeah, he didn't. He doesn't go that far, but anyhow. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you if you go that far though, then it, there's even a there's a, a theologian I forgot the name has a book called I think Deep Incarnation right now, which is mm. even asking it's kind of these cosmic Christ type questions about mm. like what about this table? Like, is this table part of the incarnate world? Like, has God gone that far, or what was happening before humans? You know, and so those I think so you could go down this. So yes. my point is all that from Durkheim. Yeah, all that from Durkheim. Wow. Like that's quite a spiral, but I think it was ultimately a beautiful spiral. And I end up citing it a lot in my writing now whenever talking about this genealogy of the history of the social idea of what religion is. Right. Oh, I love it. Okay. So, well done. Well done. Well done. Yeah. Okay. So it's, you know, I love that you brought up bodies and what humans do together because my next book, it's actually really, that's a good bridge, oh. bridge book. Yep. Um, one of the books that formed me as a scholar was Ritual Theory, Ritual Practice oh. by Catherine Bell. I've brought Catherine I read that Bell one in the same so seminars that Durkheim. Times. Oh yes. my gosh. Okay, so, Give and for us. a lot of the same reasons. So Catherine Bell basically argues um, for a really robust ritual lens on interpreting religious traditions, especially when it comes to how power and authority work in religious spaces. Mm. So um, basically the, the moment of ritual, the ritual moment for um, Catherine Bell is this moment where power is created and maintained and authority is established. Um. Now for me, I grew up um, in a 
quite charismatic um, Pentecostal tradition. Um, and it is a tradition that until very, 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 very recently was not recognized in scholarly literature, especially in American religious history as a really formative thing, like in a, a big important event. So for example, if you were to, and I've assigned books like this, where it's like a documentary history of American religious history or um, a survey of American religious history, Pentecostalism gets like the tiniest mention, right? Very like really on the, on the, as almost like an afterthought, Brian is doing a selfie right now. I'm, where so I'm, sorry. About, I'm so sorry about where that. I'm talking about Come on. ritual. I, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Don't, don't this, take my I thought, power, I thought, man. No, it was so beautiful. Yeah. I was like, we have to have this moment. Yeah. Right. Okay. We have yeah, to have yeah. it. I can't let it go. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> that's but, right. That's right. So. Okay. Anyway. So basically, um, as someone who's from a tradition that does not, is not often recognized because they're the powerful moments and the really influential moments are not necessarily delivered through written words mm. or even really through spoken words. Mm -hmm. So, and yet Pentecostal and charismatic Christians are the, by far the fastest growing form of Christianity worldwide. Why are they not recognized as such? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that one of the reasons why at least this, this kind of dawned on me while I was uh, a young student was because we, de we definitely tend to minimize and probably a lot of this has to do with like the Protestant nature of um, like American and other European forms of um, like religious studies world. Um, but we tend to not look at ritual first, but if you take a ritual first approach to looking at movements like Pentecostalism, then you see, Oh wow. Like this is really getting people right. Like, so a lot of the rituals that were, um, formed in Pentecostal communities are now super normal at your average um, non-denominational church. Oh, totally. That's not a written down thing, but you better believe that those movements are deeply influencing like the trajectory of Christianity in the United States and globally. So Catherine Bell is, is the person who kind of got me yeah. Her, her work is, a, is the work that got me thinking along those lines. Mm -hmm. And so now everywhere I go, I'm so fascinated by what is being communicated here. Yeah. You know, like, so the next time, and I hope it doesn't ruin it, this for anybody, but the next time you're in a religious service, think about that. Like, how is this, what's being communicated here by where the chairs are and who gets up and stands up right. when and, and how the people respond to particular, you know, communities, like as they, as they get up and share. So anyway, can't yeah. get it well, out of my head. I can, I actually have a line memorized from that book because we read it in the same seminar. Is, oh. is this, is this a dream or is this real? She says, kneeling <laughs> produces a subordinated kneeler. It does. That's the idea. It does, right? which is really, so like if, if, for example, if you go and to a Catholic mass, one of the first things you do before you are seated is you genuflect, mm -hmm. which is, that means you basically do a lunge, you, you kneel, right? Do a lunge. And you cross yourself and that is an act of subordination. Right. Right. Yeah. An act or in, in kind of more like spiritually words, an act of submission. Right. Right. Yeah. So what we do with our bodies what we do physically, what we do. Yeah. I, this is great. Yes. This is so great. Thanks. Good I, one. Did we take the same class? We must've. I think we did. Yes. We, uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Tennessee. These last ones are going to have to be slightly more of a speed round yep. than okay. those first speed two. Round. I'm going to share this one. This is by John D. Levinson, the death of the death and resurrection of the beloved son, the transformation mm. of child sacrifice in Judaism and Christianity. John Levinson was one of the professors in my doctoral program. He was, I had a couple of classes that I audited with him and he was on my dissertation committee. Wow. He is a, he is a Jewish author. He's traditional Jewish um, religiously. 
and grew up, I think, in an Orthodox community, actually. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Yeah, in like Virginia or something, or West yes. Virginia. Okay. One of the funniest people on the planet, but just a brilliant scholar. In this book, I mean, this one's more in my field of, of Hebrew Bible Old Testament. I mean, the upshot of this, and I know, I know, I have to, com I have to compress this. I just got to like, get ready. Like, you're I struggling. Can't, land that plane. I, okay, land I got to calm plane. down. I got to calm yeah. down right now. I got to calm down. <laughs> Um, he basically says, look, like when you read the Bible, it's funny, like in the Old Testament, child sacrifice comes up a lot. Mm. Like in the Abraham story, Genesis 22, I think that is. Um, it's weird. Like people have struggled reading this story for generations and have wanted to pathologize Abraham. Like, oh, what like a psycho. Wrong with what him. a psycho. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or God wasn't really asking for him to sacrifice his son. But then consider the problem even theologically, if he's not really asking him to do it, then, you know, yes, it's a test, but it's like, the, you know, you, if seems you like a fake. If test. you take the risk out of it, like the PSAT. I, if you take the risk out of it I, for God, yes. <laughs> if, you if you take the risk out of it for God, then you also took the risk out of it for Abraham. And isn't the whole point that there's something deeply risky about this this interaction? So he's like, huh? And then he points out there are lots of other texts like this, like in in, in Exodus and in, in the so-called covenant code. There's this whole thing like, yeah, you will give this animal for sacrifice, and you'll give this. Also, you'll give your firstborn child. Mm. And it just goes on and on. Like it just assumes like that you know what that means without saying what that giving is. There are other texts that show that child sacrifice, at least in, in this world, in the biblical vision, was a powerful thing. And then for Christians, now it gets really weird fast. I mean, do Christians typically think about the fact that their religion is based on the idea of a child sacrifice? Mm. It's God's son. Right. Is given right. up to death. And so what he basically says, at least in the Hebrew Bible, is that maybe in the background of these texts, there was a live practice of child sacrifice. Maybe the Israelites didn't do it. Of course, actually, Hebrew prophets do accuse Israel of actually doing child sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So actually, that would just be literally true on the Bible's own terms. But he basically says, his argument is that what we find in biblical texts, and he does a lot of very um, textured readings, what we find is that child sacrifice no longer survives as a literal practice, but survives as a notion or as an idea or as a value. Mm. And even just that idea, and I'm, I'm an oldest child in my family, and just right. to think of like my parents' struggle of what it might mean to like give a child over Oof. to the world. I mean, and I have, a, I have two children, so I have an oldest child. And so the idea of like having to give something, something just naturally special, not really, but like- And about something the, that you're physically so intertwined. Yeah, with. just like yeah. giving that over. And so this book is about that with then gestures toward um, Christianity and then asking Christians to take seriously the theme of child sacrifice as, wow. a, as a theme. So- Wow. Super beautiful. I'm going to stop there. Okay. Great just, pick. Great pick. Okay. Great pick. I'm yep. snapping here. Yep. Okay. My last one. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm going to so be really we're, fast. We're doing two. We said three. Yes. Now we're doing two. It's yes. just, you know, you got to, you got to go to the Patreon episode. Just kidding. We don't That's have a Patreon. Right. We don't. We, we don't should. make people bad. We, we should. should. We should have. Yeah. Okay. I think about five years ago was right. the time for that. Yeah, it's I know. Too late. We're, yeah. we're late. Okay. Um, okay. So my, my last one is um, Anthea Butler, Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World. When I was working on my dissertation, which became a book about two Pentecostal revivalist women, Mariah Woodworth Etter and Amy Semple McPherson. I read Anthea Butler's work on women in the Church of God in Christ, which is the largest black Pentecostal denomination in the United States. And um, and Anthea Butler's work is this really groundbreaking exploration of women and gender in that tradition. Mm -hmm. And there's so much to say about this book, but I know that our time is limited. But well, one so of the give, things, give it a shot. one what of my heck? big takeaways is uh, churches, uh, Church of God in Christ has a really strong holiness strand to it. Um, another word for that would be the sanctified tradition. One of the things that um, Dr. Butler does is show how certain types of holiness code practices show their theological and social value for black women. 
in mm. the early 20th century. And having grown up in a tradition with a really strong holiness strand, and by that I mean that there are codes for how you live your life and what you put on your body, what you don't put on your body, you know, mm. like you might not cut your hair or put makeup on. I grew up in a tradition that sort of had lax holiness codes. And you know that because uh. the women wear lots of makeup and have short hair like me. Um, <laughs> but but um, just this idea that holiness codes provided... Uh, social, political, and theological um, power for women in these communities was a total revelation to me. There's so much more about the book um, that I could recommend, but it got me really thinking about how practices are um, interpreted in communities and then outside of communities themselves. Because you might look at um, a woman who is wearing traditional holiness garb, which would be, you know, you don't want to show, even showing your ankles is a little bit scandalous mm. um, and not wearing makeup. And you might see that and say, oh, like that's like frumpy, marginalized woman. Um, but actually in, in many holiness traditions, that is a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit working in that person. So you have people who look like that, who are uh, doing things that would be very extraordinary for women in that era to do, such as having a lot of spiritual power and just practical power over men. Um, so that book, Women in the Church of God in Christ, is is such a fun read. It's such great history. Okay. Oh, we're so close to being oh, done. We're so close. Yes. Well, I think the only way we can end here is to thank R for that email and that invitation. Yes, R. Thank you and so much. So we, we, we give a round of applause for R Yay. for this email. And to our live audience here, thank you so thank much. You. Yeah, this is fun. This has been a production of Weird Religion. A podcast for people who know religion is weird but love it anyway. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Follow us into the ocean. Allow your heart to blossom. Retreat into the gorgeous and haunted forests of your mind. Find us there. <laughs>